Broadsheet Radio Network. Welcome back to another episode of Shared History. The ultimate history machine. The Wow. And I always say we're going to get in the history machine. How perfect. I didn't know that there, was, that there were levels of the history machine. Yeah. And we are the ultimate one, the top, primo, best. Everyone else better step off. <laughs> we are the ultimate. I'm just going to dig right in because I know that we're going to have entirely too much fun on this on this episode with our guests. So I'm just going to introduce them so we can get them in the mix. Our guest today is the host of the Pan Am podcast, which covers not just aviation history, but oral histories with interviews from employees, passengers, historians, authors, but there's also like fashion history in there and culture history. And it's, and it's an absolutely beautiful podcast all about Pan American Airlines, and I am obsessed with it. He's also a board member of the Pan Am Museum. He's the co-author of uh, several books on Columbus, Ohio history. He has co-led several tours in Columbus. And we recently learned has an unofficial PhD in James Bond studies, which <laughs> please, colleges, make this an accredited thing <laughs> because I will give you more money. I can come teach it. Yeah, it's our Sign me up. wonderful guest, Thomas Betty. Thank you very much. I should have confirmed how to pronounce your last name, but I just you pronounced it. it okay. But you can call me Tom unless you're mad at me, and then you okay. can call me Thomas. And then we can say Thomas. Yes. <laughs> if if I, I get a little long winded, then you can say Thomas, and I, I'll get the message. We'll rein you in, Tom. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. All I know about Pan Am, I learned from a play and a movie. So I know that you guys did an episode on uh, Frank Abingdale or like with an interview with Frank Abingdale, mm -hmm. but for listeners, the uninitiated listeners who didn't see this movie for some reason in theaters 10 times, um, Catch Me If You Can taught me everything I think I know. Catch Me If You Can in Mad Men probably taught me everything I think I know about Pan Am. <laughs> Yeah, and what's great about Catch Me If You Can, it came out in 2002, Academy nom nominated. It didn't win any Academy Awards, but it was nominated. Uh, Christopher Walken uh, plays Frank Abagnale's father in the movie, and he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor and John Williams' score, of course, the great John Williams. Uh, but that, that came out in 2002 and kind of reintroduced Pan Am to a whole new generation because Pan Am went out of business in 1991, December of 1991. So really uh, in 2002, a whole new generation was introduced to the glamor uh, and the history of Pan Am, which, which is, is, is great. Is, uh, is that I'm all, I'm just like getting, I'm just getting right into it. Please. Um, mostly because I, is that, kind of casting process of of the flight attendants in that movie is that like accurate is that like how that process it felt very much more like an audition for like a film than like a job interview or a yeah so what, a job interview 
what Natalie is referring to is there's a scene where Frank Abagnale portrays a, he's portraying himself as a pilot. Um, obviously he's an imposter and he went to a high school and basically did a beauty contest. Uh, this whole scene, by the way, was, was entirely made up okay. for the movie. Um, and, uh, had a beauty contest and then showed up at the airport with, uh, you know, 15, uh, beautiful, uh, girls at his arm. Um, so the recruiting process was not like that, but it was very much focused on, um, appearance and people had to speak, uh, at least two different languages. So these were very highly educated ladies, uh, but the airline certainly wanted them to look a certain way. Uh, so that certainly went into their selection and recruitment process. But one of the things that kind of upsets me and upsets people in, in the aviation history community is they're kind of portrayed as, uh, how can I say, they're, they're kind of portrayed as uh, women that are not sophisticated, uh, beautiful women that are not sophisticated. But these ladies were very sophisticated. Uh, and Pan Am, aside from some of the other airlines, you know, Pan Am was a cut above because these were very sophisticated, highly intelligent women that were traveling all around the world in places that, I mean, different countries in Africa, in Asia, where you know you have to kind of assimilate yourself and adapt on what country you're in mm -hmm. and and also there's some preparation uh you need to prepare for the, the different languages the cultures the different norms so what the movie did was kind of portrayed uh the the stewardess in that that um scene as kind of you know it's all about looks and a beauty pageant and it's much more than that yeah well because uh, uh it was more was it more it was more competitive to become a pan am stewardess than probably the other airlines right yeah so uh back in the 50s and 60s and 70s up until deregulation in 1977 really only two airlines flew international uh pan am flew exclusively international they did not have a domestic network uh, everything was highly regulated and they were not allowed to fly within the United States. TWA uh, was another airline that's kind of like the, the second best on the tier. Uh, and they did have a domestic network uh, and they did fly uh, international. But up until the turn of the 1970s, um, those were the two games in town if you wanted to fly international. It's interesting when you introduced just a bunch of adjectives before Pan Am, you said glamour. And these were highly educated women. They were very, you know, beautiful women. They, you know, appearance was a very important part of it. Um, but it was, it was kind of, I mean, air travel in general was just kind of starting to become commercialized where more and more people would fly you know mm -hmm. and i mean i remember even as a kid my mom would make us dress up before we would go to the airport you know 
we were going to look nice when we got on the plane. Now I'm just in sweats with a pillow <laughs> and all of that. But it was like glamour. And you had mentioned earlier, fashion had a lot to do with it. Mm -hmm. Oh, um, absolutely. And the even the uniforms, uh, it wasn't just Pan Am, but uh, all the famous designers were designing uniforms for all the different airlines. It's so even Edith Head, the great Edith Head of Hollywood fame, the, the award Academy Award winning um, costume uh, professional, she designed in the late 70s, she designed a, a Pan Am uniform. I That's wild. Yeah. I know that I just kind of like threw us in because my brain, I don't know why, but I loved Catch Me If You Can when it came out. Like, oh, yeah. It truly great movie. Like eight to 10 times in theaters. Mm -hmm. um, granted, movie tickets didn't cost 20 bucks then. Uh, but I also feel like it just serves as like a nice little pop quiz of like, yes, listeners, Tom knows an insane amount about Pan Am. And I, why, why, why do you know so much about Pan Am? What kind of sparked good, good this question. passion for this it's, specific history? It's kind of long, so I'll try to shorten it. Um, so I've always loved aviation. My uncle worked for Eastern Airlines at the time when I was growing up, um, and I always wanted to be a pilot myself. And uh, when I was five years old, I suffered an eye injury, and that kind of put my dreams of being a pilot to rest. Oh, no. uh, but in that same year, my my dad took me to the Cleveland Air Show, 1985. So you can do the math and figure out how old I was. I am now. Um, so he took me to the Cleveland Air Show and the Concorde was there, uh, which is this beautiful airplane. It looks like a bird when it's in, in the air. It's just a fantastic airplane. And for our listeners that don't know the history of the Concorde. The Concorde was the very first supersonic aircraft and supersonic aircrafts are starting to come back. There is a company out of Denver, Colorado called Boom Supersonic, and they are developing the next generation of supersonic aircraft and United Airlines and American Airlines have both placed orders for supersonic aircraft. Um, but getting back to my story, so I see this wonderful plane in the air, and this kind of ties into the whole Pan Am story. Um, and for our listeners that are wondering, well, did Pan Am ever have a Concorde? And they did order um, eight Concords, but then they canceled it in the early 70s with the success of the Boeing 747 jumbo jet and also the rising oil costs and the terrorism um in the early 70s so they canceled their order the only two air airlines that flew the concord was british airways and air france because they were an extension of their governments at the time and the british and french government they spent boatloads of money on the concord project so i saw that um and you know in in the late 80s i loved james bond movies which i still do and my uncle, who worked for Eastern Airlines, uh, Eastern Airlines went out of business in January of 1991, the same month that Pan Am filed for bankruptcy, but was continuing to operate. And he was out of a job. And uh, one of the Pan Am employees at Cleveland Hopkins Airport, uh, he was very friendly with them, 
and they said, you know, we can't hire you. You know, we're kind of on this hiring freeze, but if you can help us around the station, we can pay you with uh, passes to anywhere you want to go in the world. So my uncle said, well, I have nothing better to do. Why not? Um, and my, my mom and my uncle and my grandmother uh, are from Southern Italy originally. And we thought, well, you know, we have these six uh, passes to fly anywhere in the world. Why don't we spend the summer in Southern Italy in 1991? So, uh, so that's what we decided. My baby sister, uh, she was a toddler at the time. My father, my mom, and then my uncle and my grandmother, we went to, um, to Italy. So at that time, when you fly on an airline, it's called standby. And you don't know if you're going to get on the plane or not. And you have to be dressed up. So four o'clock in the morning, because we had to fly out of Cleveland very early. And at that time, all of the international flights usually left in the evenings. So we knew that we were going to have a huge layover in New York um, until our plane that evening left. But we had to leave Cle Cleveland. I think our flight left at like six in the morning. So 4.30 in the morning, I'm putting on my suit and my parents made a critical miscalculation. They, um, I, I haven't worn my suit for about a year. So the previous summer I was 10 years old and my suit fit, fit fine. I had this nice gray suit with a clip on tie, but I went to go put on my shoes and my shoes didn't fit. And there was pandemonium in my, my house. Like my parents, <laughs> Oh my God, what are we going to do? You know, just, it wasn't just that people dressed up to go on planes. There was a dress code, right? Like there was there, a dress code. Like, yes. No Especially fancy shirt, no fancy shoes, no flight. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, so they were terrified that we weren't going to get on the plane because I had to wear my white Converse tennis shoes with my suit. <laughs> now oh my we, gosh. we got to the airport and everyone's like, Oh, isn't this cute? You know, this, you know, 12 year old boy, you know, is his, her 11 year old, I was at the time, 11 year old boy in, in white tennis shoes and a suit. <laughs> and we got on the plane. Um, but, you know, who knows, maybe I started a new trend. Um, You're lucky you were 12. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're like a, an adult with the white tennies. And yeah. Uh, but they were, they were very concerned because uh, this, the dress code was very strict, very strict. Um, passengers, it was at, at that time in the early nineties, it was, you know, it was still kind of expected that people would dress up, even if you're flying economy. Um, but if you're flying on the airline's dime, you, you better be dressed up to the nines. So we get to JFK and we were at the world port, which the world port has been demolished, uh, 2013. It came down, unfortunately, but it was for our listeners, it's like this it looked kind of like a UFO kind of thing. It was built in the early 60s. And that was the Pan Am World Port. And I had all day to explore. So I'm just walking around. I was bored out of my mind. Um, and, and at that time, there wasn't a, real, a lot of activity around there because usually uh, in the evening, people would start coming. And I was walking around and I walked out the front door and I walked down the ramp. And then I turned around and I was walking back up the ramp and I stopped and I said, wait a second, I know this. I, I've seen this before. I don't know where, but I've seen this before. And then I said, that's right. This is from 
the movie Live and Let Die. And this is where Roger Moore walked out of the terminal as James Bond. No way. So, so I ran in, you know, found, found my parents all excited that I, you know, made this discovery. Of course, no one cared. But uh, but then I'm like, wait a second, I am flying on James Bond's airline. So later that night, we were boarding for our flight to Rome. Uh, and it was the 747. Uh, and at that time in 1991, and some of our younger listeners think that this is just incredible, but there was a smoking and non-smoking section on the aircraft. Some of and, our younger listeners think that it probably think that it's insane that there were smoking sections. Yeah, absolutely. Let alone yes. on a plane. Yes. Also, uh, smoking has been banned on planes for so long. Why are there still cigarette ashtrays. like ashtrays? And why do they still make that announcement? I don't understand. Because people yeah, still try is, to smoke on the plane. That's true. Kind of silly. But no, people do still try to smoke on planes. Yeah. Um so I so we were scattered all over the main cabin because it was a full flight. And I was way in the back on the right side, the very last seat in the middle of the smoking section. So we get airborne and everybody comes into the back and lights up. And there was like this haze that you could see wait, uh, that was wait, just hovering there. It just occurred to me that people aren't just sitting in the smoking section. People are wandering about the cabin to get to the smoking section and that's correct in the yes. smoking section yes and well, and for our listeners a boeing 747 is absolutely huge it has two aisles and it has an upper deck and it is huge it could hold between 300 and 400 people depending on the configuration and when i say the configuration uh what i mean is there are three different classes there's first class there's clipper class which is pan am's business class and then there's economy. And depending on how you configure the aircraft, uh, you could have up to 400 people on this plane, which is just crazy. Um, so I'm sitting in, in the smoking section, there's this haze, and there's this gentleman sitting next to me because I wasn't sitting with my family. And he looks at me and uh, he said, are you feeling okay? And I said, well, not, no, not really, I'm kind of queasy. And he said, yeah, I am too, was it the smoke? And I said, yeah. And then, and then he started, you know, make, we started making small talk. I mean, we had, you know, eight hours to sit there. Um, and he's like, you know, well, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I still had James Bond on the mind. And I was like, thinking to myself, well, I can't be in the British Secret Service because I'm an American. <laughs> so I'm going to tell this guy that I want to be in the U.S. Secret Service. So I tell him, you know, I want to be in the U.S. Secret Service. And he looks at me. And, you know, just looks at me for a second. And then he reaches into his um, pocket in his suit coat and he pulls out a badge and he says, I'm in the U.S. Secret Service. And I, my mind was blown. Like I'm you sitting, were sitting next, next to, to American James Bond. Agent. Yes, yes. <laughs> so the whole flight, I'm asking him questions. You know, he started with Lyndon Johnson uh, he was going over to Europe to be on the advanced detail for George H.W. Bush at the time that was visiting in a couple of weeks. Um, he knew Nixon really well. Uh, he knew the Nixon family really well. So I just had the time of my life, um, you know, talking to this guy. And the flight attendants kept walking by and, and winking at me because they probably knew who this guy was. Because 
what I found out later is they have this special list that they get before each flight and it tells them if any member of law enforcement is on the plane. So they, they, if they ever had any problems, they can go to them. Um, I did ask him if he was carrying a gun and he said, I couldn't tell you if I was. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if he was or not, probably not. But, um, and as when we were landing, the flight attendant comes over and said, and said to me, I just talked to your mom and I just want to tell you that when we land, when you get off the airplane, I don't want you to be scared because you're going to see a whole bunch of soldiers. And this was, you know, during the Gulf War. Uh, so the Gulf War was still, you know, kind of going on. Um, and sure enough, I'm glad that she said something because when I got off the airplane, there were machine guns and uh, sandbags and it, it looked like a war zone in this airport. Um, and again, to, to our younger listeners uh, that that's used to that, in 1991, an 11-year-old American boy, it, you don't see that very often. So it was kind of jarring at the time. Uh, but I can, I can leave, leave out the story of, uh, you know, living in southern Italy for the summer uh, for another time. But coming home, we, uh, we went to Rome and the, the whole flight was, was open. So she, the ticket agent said, you know, where would you like to sit? And I said, you know, I don't care. Where do you want, where do you want us to sit? And she said, well, do you want to sit upstairs? And I said, of course. Yes. Yeah, I want to sit upstairs. <laughs> so I flew clipper class uh, coming home and was treated like, you know, a prince uh, in clipper class upstairs on a 747 upper deck. Um, and that's when my love affair with Pan Am began. So since then i've i've read many books i've uh collected many uh artifacts and items of pan am and my friends would always say when they would come visit you know what's with all this pan am stuff and you know i i would tell them the story and they're like oh you got to put this online this is a great story cass we have to take an ad break fair enough but we're a history podcast, so we have to infuse this interlude with some tasty, tasty facts. Okay. Oh, tasty facts. Like brewing beer using hops became a standard practice as a result of early drug laws in Bohemia. Ah, yes. The Reinheitsgebot Law of 1560. I remember it well. Now that hops are no longer a legally required ingredient in beer, welcome to the future, our friends at Herbiary have taken it upon themselves to release your taste buds from the cages of convention. They've experimented with over 200 different herbs and botanicals, building on the rich tradition and fermented folklore of hop-free brewing. Learn more about their delicious section of brews and where to find them at herbiary.com. So the pandemic happened and I had nothing better to do. So I put this story online and the Pan Am people went crazy. And I got people sending me messages from all over. They're sending me pictures of uh, the plane that I think I was on and the crew, you know, do you, do you recognize these people? That's and, so cool. And then the Pan Am Museum people uh, reached out and then they found out that I'm a historian and that I've worked on nonprofit uh, projects before. And that's kind of how I, you know, came into the whole, you know, Pan Am Museum. And, and when I joined the Pan Am Museum, um, I asked the question, uh, so what kind of museum is the Pan Am Museum. And one of the board members said, well, we're an aviation museum. And I said, 
no, you're not. You're not an aviation museum. And they just looked at me like, what are you talking about? Of course, we're an aviation museum. What are we? And I said, you're a Pan Am museum. Pan Am history is not just about aviation. There's military history. There's cultural history. Mm-hmm. There's Cold War history. There's all of these different uh, categories that it could fit into. And that's something that, you know, we completely kind of refocused our mission statement to kind of encompass all of that and not just talk about, you know, airplanes and the range and the engine, which is all important, but Pan Am history is much more than that. And then I said, well, what are we doing? And I don't mean to to sound offensive when I say this, but with time, you know, everyone gets older and the natural course of things happen. And, you know, Pan Am's been gone for almost 31 years now. And we have many people uh, that are still around that we need to capture their stories. So we started talking about oral histories. And that's when I came up with the idea for the Pan Am podcast, because, you know, podcasts are, are the, the best vehicle to be able to tell these stories. And when we, when we published uh, a year ago, a year ago this month, um, I didn't even know if anyone would listen. Um, and since then, you know, we are listened to in 124 countries and we have over 60,000 downloads. I don't know if any, what all of that means. I think it's good, <laughs> but it's certainly popular in the, the Panium community and the Panium family has adopted me as one of their own. And I've, I've developed some really, really great friendships that I just cherish because these people are just wonderful. And, uh, a lot of them, you know, lost everything when the Pan, when Pan Am went out of business, uh, they lost their pensions and they still love this airline because this airline, there was something about this airline and its people that was really, really special. And it's my honor to be able to tell their stories. So what led to Pan Am going out of business? Because it was, I mean, I'm sure that's a loaded question, but it is. Oh, yeah. It's, um, I mean, even people who lost their pensions and lost their jobs sure. and they love it so much. And it is this huge cultural touchstone. Sure. Um, and it just reminds me, I have to go back to the Concord story to tie, tie that into it. Um, but to answer your question, you know, why did Pan Am go bankrupt uh, and close in December of 1991? It's very complicated. Um, terrorism is certainly... Uh, one of one huge factor in all of this. When you're the unofficial carrier for the United States and you have this big American flag and your logo is the most recognized logo in the world next to Coca-Cola. And when people see giant letters Pan Am on the side of an aircraft, you know, that's American, uh, you become a terrorist target especially in the 1980s. And who wants to fly on an airline that people are blowing planes out of the sky? And Lockerbie was kind of the beginning of the end for Pan Am. Because after Lockerbie, and Lockerbie, for our listeners that don't know, uh, was a terrorist attack in December of 1988, Terrorist. I'm going to make you take more, talk more about Lockerbie later on. But sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, terrorists put a bomb on the plane and it exploded over Lockerbie, Scotland, and it killed everybody on board. Uh, and that was 
a shocking moment for American history. And it was a shocking mo moment for aviation history. And who wants to fly on an airline that is a terrorist target? So that's one factor. And then economics is another factor. Mm -hmm. Some of the leadership of uh, Pan Am after its founder, Juan Tripp, retired, uh, made some decisions that came to haunt the airline. Um, and also deregulation really killed Pan Am as well. And then the oil crisis in the 1970s. So there's lots of different factors and I can talk about it for five hours, which <laughs> you probably don't want me to. Um, so that to answer your question, it, it's complicated, but terrorism was definitely <clears throat> the last straw for the airline. And it hung that on for sense. a couple of years afterwards. Um, mm -hmm. And then uh, America lost three airlines in 1991, Eastern Airlines, Midway Airlines and uh, Pan Am. Um, and Pan Am was the premier car uh, carrier of the United States for 64 years uh, before that. So getting back to the Concorde story. So I told you when I was a kid, I saw the Concorde. So with this, this uh, Pan Am podcast, I was interviewing Captain Mike Bannister of British Airways, who was the lead pilot for the British Airways Concorde project. And he was talking about how he went to air shows in the 1980s and how he loved going to air shows. And I was interviewing him and uh, I said, well, you know, when I was a kid, my dad took me to the Cleveland Air Show and the Concorde was there. Uh, and I said that was in 1985. And he's like, oh, yeah, I totally remember that. Um, that was a great air show. I was there flying it. And, you know, Casual. like. <laughs> 36 no years later, you know, I'm talking to the guy that was flying the plane when I was a kid, looking up and seeing it. So that's kind of how, how, and I, I don't want to use the word weird, but this whole Pan Am thing is, is like, it's fate that I'm talking to all these folks. Mm -hmm. um, and there's Pan Am connections to everything. Uh, and it's, it's been quite remarkable. Do you ever think about the fact that now, Tom, you're part of Pan Am history? Well, I never really thought of it that way. Um, <laughs> but but sure, you know, if if uh, if I can help preserve the story for the next generation, and in thirty years, in forty years, if what we're doing is successful and Pan Am history is preserved, then that's fantastic. If we fail, then Pan Am becomes a footnote in history like Standard Oil, and that's what we don't want. Mm -hmm. um, and with the, the podcast and our YouTube channel, and now we're on TikTok and Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, we are connecting with a whole new generation. I, I, so recently, there was a kid in Oklahoma, of all places, he... Um, sent a message to the museum saying that the podcast is his favorite podcast and he loves history more because of it. 16 year old kid. Uh, uh, swoon. And, and, you know, as, as Cassie and, and Natalie, as you know, these podcasts are not easy to put together. It's lots of time uh, and, and dedication to do it. And it's all worth it when I hear, you know, someone that's 16 that wasn't even alive when Pan Am went out, out mm -hmm. of business uh, that is interested in this history. And then since then, 
you know, we have a 17 year old high school intern working for us and a 21 year old graduate student from England uh, doing some work for us. So if we can continue getting these young people in, in, interested in, in our history, then, then I think we're on the right track. It's just such an iconic brand. And I guess I didn't even realize that it was the, did you say official or unofficial carrier of the United States? Unofficial. So um, in the 1950s, 1960s, uh, many countries had their national airline, which meant that their governments uh, contributed to and owned the carrier. Uh, British Airways, Air France, Alitalia, um, Jap Jap Japan, Japan Airways. Um, so there's lots of, of those cases, but America, we never went that route. Um, no, we don't like funding transportation in America. <laughs> but that's that's very true. Um, <laughs> but uh, but Pan Am was the pioneer. So uh, Pan Am was the first to cross the Pacific Ocean, which was groundbreaking at the time. It was like the moon landing. Mm -hmm. uh, in 1936, the China Clipper, a Martin M130 flying boat, uh, which had two decks, uh, across the Pacific Ocean. And this was the brainchild of Juan Tripp, who was the founder. Pan Am was founded in 1927. And by 1936, uh, it was able to do something that no one ever did before. And what and how they did it was uh, Juan Tripp looked at a globe and he picked out some islands, Wake Island, Midway Island, which would come into play in World War II in the 1940s. Uh, and he said, you know, if we can find these islands and make Pan Am air bases there, then we can fly planes and kind of puddle jump so they mm -hmm. can stop at these islands, refuel, and then go to the other island, refuel, and then get to Manila, the Philippines, and then get, go on to China and, and wherever else. Uh, the biggest obstacle was how to get from San Francisco to Honolulu, because there is nothing in between. Yeah. Now, between Hawaii. It's still a long flight. Yeah, there's like nothing a, in between. How is flight going to make it length flight sometimes? And, and there's a point where uh, the halfway point where it's the point of no return. If you have any engine trouble, um, you know, you can't turn back. You have to keep on going. Um, so is if he could solve that problem of San Francisco to Honolulu, then getting to the Asian continent uh, would be easy using these little islands that he's building on. So in the 1930s, the American government uh, asked Pan Am, which they, they did throughout the 64 year history to do special missions for them. One of those special missions was spying on Japanese naval movements in the 1930s. This is way before Pearl Harbor. And uh, the, the Japanese empire viewed Pan Am as an extension of the American government, which, you know, and it, it kind of was. And what then happened with Pearl Harbor is everyone knows about Pearl Harbor, but also Wake Island and Midway Island were bombed and invaded. And those were Pan Am bases at the time. So Pan Am employees were either killed or captured by the Japanese on Pearl Harbor Day. And that what 
what Pan Am and TWA did in, in regards to commercial aviation in the 1930s really set the tone for technology for World War II to come and for the allies to have advanced aviation technology. So after Pearl Harbor, Pan Am, you know, basically became an extension of the United States Navy and the United States Army Air Corps. And they were instrumental in the resupply efforts of the, the allies and, and also transporting VIPs uh, such as Winston Churchill and the very first presidential Air Force One in quotes. I to ask about the first presidential flight. Yes. And I say in quotes because um, Air Force One was not always called Air Force One. The, the, the United States Air Force wasn't even uh, founded yet in 1942. But the United States military called up Pan Am and said, we need to fly President Roosevelt um, to Africa for a summit to Casablanca specifically. So the first presidential flight, and this is kind of a, a beer trivia question, uh, who was the first president to fly? I'm writing well, this down right now. I know. Yes. <laughs> so who was the first president to fly? So if you say Roosevelt, that is correct. But which one? Because Teddy Roosevelt flew on an aircraft in 1912, but he was no longer president at the time. He was a former president. Mm. Franklin D. Roosevelt was yeah. the first was... sitting pre president, exactly, to fly on an aircraft. And that was a Boeing 314 flying boat called the Dixie Clipper. And uh, that was the first time a president ever flew on an aircraft. Also, you, sitting tell president. Me, you tell me that a Roosevelt flew to Africa and I'm like, Teddy. <laughs> my friend would be like, Teddy. Yeah, yeah. it wasn't. He's going to kill some big game. Obviously. Yeah, it was dead. It was dead. <laughs> um, also, I love the airplanes are called boats or airbuses. I don't know why. I just... I sure. It just that. feels better to me. It just yeah. feels well, sweet. <laughs> so I'll tell you something else. So Juan uh, Trip loved naval history. And this is a, a, another contribution to uh, that Pan Am made to commercial aviation. So he loved naval history. And he called all of his flying boats clippers. So and they all had a name. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the Dixie Clipper, for instance. And then when we started getting into uh, other air, airplanes, they, the Clipper came first. So Clipper, Empress of the Seas or, or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. uh, and also another thing that Pan Am did was, you know, you call the pilot of the plane the captain, right? And they mm -hmm. wear these naval uniform. That's all Pan Am did all of that. What way? Yes. This is what I'm saying. Is that like Pan Am specifically, you you don't realize how many things are directly correlated to how this company ran and how this company was designed. Because and and in the in your podcast, Tom, like not all of your interviewees are is there like an immediate clear connection to Pan Am? It's not all like employees and pilots, like some of them are, are, are have like a more indirect connection mm -hmm. to the airline like like you do. Mm -hmm. And it's it's so interesting to just see how many how many things tie back to Pan Am to bring it back to catch me if you can. That explains <laughs> why 
in uh in that scene where he's uh Frank's using all of the pretty ladies as kind of a de- a disguise a distraction while he walks through the airport that they say like oh there's somebody in a Pan Am uniform and a Pan Am hat in this car and I remember seeing that in 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 the 2000s early 2000s when I watched it being like that's just a how how is that a Pan Am pilot uniform that's just a pilot uniform not realizing that mm-hmm. at that time that was a Pan Am pilot unit. Mm-hmm. And you could tell because it was white caps. Mm-hmm. So uh, they were the only airline that had the white caps, the the white naval caps. Like, uh, like the Navy. Yes. Mm-hmm. When I ta- when I interviewed Frank Abagnale, um, he told me, and he's told me, I mean, he, he, it's not like something new that he told me. He tells everybody this, but when he was thinking about how to cash a check uh, and he tried to to pass forged checks and nobody wanted to cash his check. And then he walked uh, around Manhattan and there was a Pan Am flight crew that was walking out of a hotel and like traffic stopped as he describes it. And everybody turned and was wondering, you know, where are they going? Um, Who are they? And uh, he came up with the idea then to go find a uniform and sure enough, he walks into a bank and he can cash anything wearing that Pan Am uniform. That's how much power and prestige that airline had in the 1960s. Did he really do the thing where he put the planes, planes in the, the bathtub, bathtub so he could pull the decal off and put it on the check? Yes, he Brought did. The name tag or two, That's yeah. brilliant. That's, yes. I love that movie so much. <laughs> I'm... I'm have you seen the musical? <laughs> I've not seen the musical. I've listened to some of the musical. Great though. music. I uh, I mentioned, in addition to Catch Me If You Can and Mad Men, at the beginning of, of this episode, I mentioned that everything I know about Pan Am, I know from TV and film and plays. And that's because my college, my freshman year of college uh, at Illinois Wesleyan, we, they did The Women of Lockerbie. And it's a absolutely gut wrenching, beautiful play. There's there are two monologues from it that especially one's a one's like the a monologue that uh, father has in it that whenever a guy who's like the right demographic asks is like, "Girl, oh, I wish I could find a good dramatic monologue." I literally just send it to him because <laughs> it's beautiful. Um, but I kind of want to talk about the very big downer that is that you alluded to earlier of all of the hijackings because I think mm-hmm. they started in the 70s but the 70s and 80s airlines in general were pockmarked with hijackings like mm-hmm. was- well in the 1960s it was almost like a novelty mm-hmm. when people oh we're going to Cuba you know isn't this fun uh, and I've talked to, to a couple people that were on some of those flights um, and it was, it was like a novelty. Oh, you know, we get to go, you know, drink some, some Cuban rum and have some Cuban sandwiches and it's a big adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, it started to change in the 1970s and one of the podcast episodes that I did, uh, and I kind of set it up, um, where, let me backtrack for a second. So I love Alfred Hitchcock and 
I'm a communications professional, my, my real job uh, in government uh, that actually pays my paycheck. This mm-hmm. Pan Am stuff is, is my passion project. And I think everyone should have a passion project, but I'm not paid for any of this. This is all, you know, my, my, my passion work. But so, um, so what, what I did with Alfred Hitchcock, one of the things I, I learned from Alfred Hitchcock is you have to have a really good story and you have to be able to kind of play with the audience's emotions and you're in control of the audience's emotions. And it's like, you're playing a piano and you have to hit the notes and keep their interest. So one of the things I do on some of these podcasts, and I I will say that if there's any deaths involved, I don't use any music and we're very, very respectful to the people that, that were killed and, and their families and friends. Uh, and some of the other podcasts out there that I've listened to don't necessarily follow that or understand that, but we're, I, I'm very conscious of that. But this particular one, episode six, um, was fortunately, miraculously, no one died in this incident. Uh, five airplanes were hijacked in the air. And one of the hijacked airplanes was a, Pan, a brand new Pan Am Boeing 747. So what I did was I played news clips to kind of set the tone and also give the audience an opportunity to listen to these news clips and understand how Americans first learned the news and what they were hearing. Mm -hmm. I kind of set that up. And then uh, after I played some news clips and, you know, talked about the incident in a very factual, historic way, I said, oh, by the way, we have somebody that was actually on the plane that's going to give us a play-by-play. And I was fortunate enough to interview Captain Paul LaChapelle, who was not the pilot of that plane, but he was deadheading on on the aircraft. And deadheading means that um, you are of another flight crew and you're basically a passenger traveling back to wherever you need to go. To to get on the the next plane that you're piloting. Yes. So that was um, that was a fantastic episode because just how fantastic it was that it's a beautiful episode. He's talking about how, you know, he's just sitting there and then this guy walks up and, you know, all of a sudden he's having a a, a pistol pointed in his face and the guy had a hand grenade. I mean, it's just crazy. Um, so you know, I try to approach these podcasts in kind of a theatrical way, but make sure that they're historically accurate and we're telling a story. Uh, the story is king in anything you do. If you do advertising, if you make movies, if you're in theater, if you don't have a good story, you can have all the special effects in the world and it's not going to work. You have to have a good story. And that's true in the in in history and everything I do in in um with history, you know, it's, it's always telling the story and trying to, to bring it back to trying to, you know, you can make history entertaining. You know, a lot of people are like, Oh, history is boring. Um, it's really not as long as you have a good storyteller to tell it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, yes, I'm a historian. I have an expensive piece of paper on my wall that says (laughs) that, you know, that's the only thing that it, it allows me to do is, you know, to say that I'm a historian, big deal, right? 
Um, but I think what I've learned in doing history for almost 20 years is you're storytellers. We're storytellers. I mean, what you're doing on this podcast uh, is you're telling a story. And I'd like to share with you a quote uh, from one of my favorite authors who recently passed away, David McCullough. Mm -hmm. And I use this a lot in my talks. And it kind of sums up what I'm talking about. And uh, here's the quote. History is not about dates and quotes and obscure provisos. History is about life, about change, about consequences, cause and effect. It's about the mystery of human nature, the mystery of time. And it isn't just about politics, the military and social issues, which is almost always the way it's taught. It's about music and poetry and drama and science and medicine and money and love. I love that. I love that so much. Also, all of those descriptors, I feel like you can just use to describe the indelible effect that Pan Am specifically had on culture. And yeah, history. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And why it was important to so many people for so many reasons. Mm -hmm. um, I highly encourage folks to go uh, check out the Pan Am podcast, but specifically, we just mentioned episode six. And then also episode 12, which is on Lockerbie and is also mm -hmm. just a beautifully, a, a beautiful telling of the story in a way that really honors uh, all and, and remembers all the victims. Mm -hmm. it was a tragedy. I also, you know me, I'm always going to recommend reading. I recommend reading The Women of Lockerbie. If you're a person who can read plays, I know that some people, their brains can't do it. The script, The, the Women of Lockerbie by Deborah uh, Brevort. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that last name wrong, um, but it's a heart-wrenching story uh, basically about the aftermath and the families of the victims who went and visited Lockerbie knowing that there was nothing physically left of of necessarily their loved ones anymore and how the town of Lockerbie kind of took them in and, and kind of created a, a support system and net for them while while they were visiting for this very tragic re reason um the 70s and 80s like we mentioned were were pockmarked by hijackings there's one thing one less still still heavy in that in it's how monumental it was but less uh heavy um <laughs> in other ways uh part of pan am history that i think is really fascinating and i didn't know until I was listening to your podcast. I didn't know that it was a Pan Am flight that aided in the evacuation of, of Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Yes. Can you so, talk about that? Of course. <laughs> oh, sometimes you just say something that is so on brand for you. What do you mean? You know, like you have a brand, the way you look and communicate, what you place value in, all of that. That's your brand. Just typical you being you. How do you know so much about brands? Oh, well, I've worked with Bates Marone Sweet Design. Who? Bates Marone? They're a boutique branding, marketing, and web design agency based in Chicago, and they've got great strategists, designers, and copywriters who all work together to make brands better. Well, how do they do that? They combine research and storytelling, they find out why a brand is the way it is, and then they bundle that up in a nice little package for businesses to take with them and use going forward. 
Dang, that sounds great. Mm -hmm. Are they just for huge corporations, though? Oh, not at all. They have experience with all sorts of clients, from startups to Fortune 500 companies. Oh, wow. Nice. Yeah. If you want to see some of their past client work, learn more about their processes, see what it takes to join the team, or if you're ready to schedule a meeting, go to their website, BatesMarone.com. B-A-T-E-S-M-E-R-O-N.com. Awesome. I can't wait to learn more. So Operation Baby Lift, uh, there's actually two parts of the story. And Operation Baby Lift basically was uh, President Ford, we were pulling out of Vietnam. And the American government wanted to get a whole bunch of war orphans um, out of Vietnam. And most of these orphans uh, either did not have, you know, parents or uh, were abandoned. And, and some of them were fathered by American soldiers. And there was a fear that the North Vietnamese government would have ostracized and maybe even killed these children. So there was this big rush to get them out. The American military was going to do it by themselves. They boarded a whole bunch of, of babies and, and children on a Air Force plane that tragically crashed. And then the American government turned to the airlines, not just Pan Am, uh, World Airways was another one. Um, they turned to the airlines and they said, we need help getting all of these babies out of Vietnam. Uh, the North Viet Vietnamese were encroaching um, on South Vietnamese territory at a rapid pace. Time was running out and Pan Am sent two Boeing 747s to get all of as many babies as possible out. Uh, they worked with Holt International um, on one of the charters. And uh, we just had an event at the museum back in May. Um, and some of these babies were in attendance. Uh, there's, they're adults now. And it was just a fantastic event um, because they got some of them never met the flight attendants that were on that flight until uh, in May. Um, and it was, I, I couldn't believe that I was part of this. Um, my heart see... just keeps growing. Like my, I'm the Grinch over here. And my every time you share an anecdote, my heart grows three sizes. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it, it, it was pretty, it was very emotional to be there. And we're going, we're going to do some podcasts about this. Um, and there was one gentleman by the name of Al Topping, who was the Pan Am station, the country manager there. Um, and he was heavily involved with this. And as far as I know, the children that are now adults that attended, uh, that was the first time meeting him. And he, he was kind of orchestrated everything. In addition to that, um, getting all of those those babies and children out, uh, Pan Am was committed to getting all of their employees out and their mm -hmm. families. Mm -hmm. uh, and these are South Vietnamese, most of them were South Vietnamese employees. And Al Topping, um, it, and it, it was very treacherous there for a little bit uh, because the, the North Vietnamese army was closing in at a rapid pace. Uh, more rapidly than they were expecting. So 
he started planning the evacuation of his Pan Am staff and their families. Uh, and there's a movie that was actually made about him called Last Flight Out, uh, starring James Earl Jones as Al Topping, which when I interviewed Frank Abagnale, I said, you know, I, I interviewed uh, uh, Al Topping, uh, who, who's become a, a close friend of mine, and um, he he was played by James Earl Jones, and now I'm talking to you, and you were played by Leonardo DiCaprio, and <laughs> it's just kind of strange. <laughs> but so what Pan Am did and what Al did is there was lots of bureaucracy within the South Vietnamese government. And he came up with this idea, which is just, I mean, putting it in modern context, it's crazy. He said, why don't we just adopt all of these adults and their families and Pan Am will take responsibility for them. And that's what they did. So he bribed members of the South Vietnamese government and Pan Am, a American corporation, adopted human beings, adults, and their families, and got them out of Saigon. It's just an incredible story. So it's there's a two-parter um, with the Operation Babylift, and then the Wings of Freedom mission was the second mission. That's wild. Yes. How many people was that that they that this airline adopted? Like it had to um, be. Yeah, close to 400, 360 something. Oh, that's a lot of baby mama drama right there. <laughs> <laughs> and and the, the I crazy, help myself, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, the crazy part is, is the South Vietnamese uh, at the very end, they're trying to taxi out of there and they were afraid of getting shot down. Mm-hmm. It was an all volunteer crew. Um, and the, the movie does a good job of kind of portraying this. Um, the uh, one of the security guards, you know, boarded the plane or was trying to board the plane. And uh, Al and his people basically told everybody on the plane, we're going to go around with garbage bags, put all of your uh, anything of value in the garbage bag. And they bribed the South Vietnamese soldiers to let them go and handed them, you know, bags of money that was going to be worthless when the North Vietnamese took over anyways. Oh, my gosh. And that's how they got out. Absolutely. This is, I can't, my brain can't handle, my brain can't handle any of this. <laughs> I feel, I feel like um, our generation grew up with Pan Am just being like a beautiful logo on um, novelty t-shirts and purses and luggage. Mm-hmm. And there's just so much there the Pan Am Museum is in uh, New York, right? Not New York City. Yes. It's right outside of New York City on, on Long Island. Okay. In Garden City, New York. Uh-huh. Cass, I smell a field trip. Hello. <laughs> well, if you're going to do that, I would recommend uh, staying at the TWA Hotel at JFK. Ooh. That's the old TWA Flight Center terminal that they turned into a hotel. It's like walking into a time warp to 1962. Yeah. Um, so it, it's fantastic. Obviously, the Pan Am World Port was demolished, but fortunately, the TWA Flight Center was saved. Um, and the architecture there, it, it was designed by Aero Saarinen, the guy that designed the St. Louis Arch mm. and, the, and some furniture, like the, the famous womb chair uh, that some uh, mid-century modern 
uh, yeah. womb chair, it's called. So he designed this and it, there's no right angles in the thing. It's just incredible. You just sit around and it's just incredible. They have like a sunken lounge. It's just great. Um, so I would stay there and then take an Uber to the museum and spend the day at the museum. This sounds like a great way to spend a day. Um, I mean, just all of, I mean, even just that architecture, even though that was TWA, but you saying, you know, your goals and if this, you know, if the podcast and the museum are successful, then, you know, generations from now they have this history. And if you lose it, it's lost. It's, it's not just losing, like you said, planes and what kind of engines they use. This is, we'll lose American history. We'll lose mm -hmm. world history. Like, absolutely. It, it's so strange that something seemingly as ubiquitous as air travel now, because it's not that far-fetched for most people to have been on a plane before, you know, mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. used to be like, oh, I've never flown. Um, and we, and especially now having capitalism. Never a, yeah. Never having been on a plane now is something you pull out when you want a lot of people to have to put a finger down and never have I ever. Yeah. It's that but, <laughs> with capitalism and commercialism like we don't think about these companies that's just like oh that's a service that's performing for me it's mm -hmm. you know it's just another thing but and it'll never go away and it will never go away how far reaching and how how many things this touched people historical events you know it, it touches everything it's mm -hmm. and it's hard to conceptualize without that knowledge of what pan pan am meant then mm -hmm. i uh episode 17 is about tenerife have you guys heard of tenerife mm -mm. no that, that's okay that's what i'm here for <laughs> um if i'm doing my job right um so tenerife is this the spanish it's in the spanish canary islands off the coast of morocco and in 1977, it was the site of the worst aviation disaster in history to date. It was called the crash of the century. Basically, what happened was you had a KLM plane and a Pan Am plane on the same runway and at the direction of air traffic control. And the KLM captain either by being an arrogant person or miscommunicating or maybe a little bit of both um, took off without clearance because he was in a rush and it was all fog and he did not see the Pan Am plane uh, down the runway and they collided uh, on the runway and everybody in the Pan Am, everybody in the KLM plane died instantly and 61 people on the Pan Am plane survived. Now, I'm telling you this because I interviewed this incredible woman named Dorothy Kelly, and we're gonna be honoring her at our uh, annual fundraising gala in November. And she was a flight attendant on that plane, and she saved many people uh, when the planes collided, she uh, sustained a head injury and the floor of the first class cabin, part of it collapsed and she woke up in the cargo hold. And somehow she was able to climb up to the upper deck, which was seared off and nobody was up there. 
uh, and everyone died that was up there. And then there was another passenger that climbed up there and together they jumped off. And that's like a three story building. Mm -hmm. That's how high that that is. Uh, and on the way down, she broke her arm and didn't even know it. And there was a bone sticking out of her arm. Uh, she had sleeves on, you know, she had a shirt with sleeves. And then she uh, dragged a whole bunch of people to safety. And for the next three hours, she was a triage nurse uh, on the tarmac or on the runway. And then also when she got to the hospital. And finally, after three hours, someone asked her to write something and she couldn't write and she didn't know why she couldn't write. She like couldn't hold a, a pen in her hand. And then one of the nurses uh, asked her to raise her sleeve. And then they're like, well, uh, you need to sit down and we need to yeah, take care we, of you. We need to triage you. <laughs> Was she actually a triage nurse in, in, in real life or did just instant kick in and she was like helping a, everybody. a little bit of both it's the panium training was so uh superior so a little bit of both um wow. the adrenaline in this woman is like a su superhero like just yeah. unbelievable and she's telling me this story in graphic detail and i'm just in awe of of this um and uh so you know i i I'm very proud of that. I'm proud of all the episodes, but that one stands out to me too, because I feel like Dorothy's story really hasn't been told. Uh, the whole story hasn't been told and she hasn't got the credit that she deserves. Um, so I felt like we did that in that episode. And then we have another episode, episode 26, um, it, uh, hijacking in 1986 in Karachi, Pakistan. And uh, four flight attendants uh, retell that story. And unfortunately, 20 people were killed by the terrorists. Uh, and one of them, Neerdra Banot, um, was a Pan Am flight attendant that lost her life and became a revered national figure in India, um, which nothing to take away from her story, but I felt like the other flight attendant's story kind of got left out. So what we did with this episode was, you know, have them an opportunity for the first time, the four of them together to kind of tell their recollections of what happened. And yeah. that was riveting too. That was very difficult. Those three episodes, the Lockerbie episode, the uh, Tenerife episode, and the Karachi episode were very, very difficult to do as an interviewer. Um, because the Lockerbie episode, I interviewed one of the flight attendant's brothers, um, obviously everyone on the plane died in Lockerbie, uh, and one of the brothers said, you know, we've decided as a family a couple of years ago that we're no longer talking to media about this. Uh, there's mm -hmm. been enough time that has passed, but they made an exception for me because they liked how I was approaching the story. And I made, uh, a, a good portion of the story. Uh, you know, I, I wanted to know what his sister was like. Mm -hmm. uh, and nobody, nobody does that. Yeah. And, and again, it goes back to we're storytellers, you know, mm -hmm. history, it's all about stories. Um, and it's up to us, you know, Natalie, Cassie and myself to tell these stories and, and, you know, like your platform here, I, I love how you guys approach it. Um, because history should be interesting. It should be sad. It should be fun. 
Um, it should be entertaining. Um, but at, at the end of the day, you're, you're telling a story. Yeah. I like that. I like the way you do those interviews, clearly the way um, the brother of the flight attendant, because, yeah, especially with the rise of, like, true crime and, you know, everyone mm -hmm. wants these salacious, like, we want to hear about the death or the gore or the drama and the best, that's honoring you and your storytelling mm -hmm. when you ask about the people that died, who was this person, mm -hmm. what were they like? that's honoring the people that's honoring the story and not the storyteller and which and, yeah. and you guys told me that you're uh in theater so um jocelyn's brother told me a story about her she was in oh she grew up in california and she was the renaissance fair and she she uh was an actress she always wanted to be an actress and she, he was telling me this story about Jocelyn and she, um, she was doing Romeo and Juliet and Romeo showed up, the actor, uh, completely shit-faced drunk. <laughs> Classic <laughs> Romeo. Uh, like couldn't remember his lines, oh. you know, completely drunk. And, and I, and afterwards I told him, well, this is a mark of a good actress, uh, <laughs> because she just went with it. And it turned out to be a comedy and everybody loved it. <laughs> That's so good. That's amazing. And afterwards, he, he told me after I turned off the recorder, he's like, you know, no one ever asked me that question of, you know, what was your sister like? Tell us some stories about your sister. Mm -hmm. And that's that's kind of a shame because, you know, everybody has a story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's why it's so important that you're doing this project while there are still firsthand accounts and, mm -hmm. and people around who can, can tell those stories. I know, I know that there have been topics on that I've thought about covering on the podcast before that because Cass and I will often go all the way back to before common era that I, in telling the story, I have to give like a thousand asterisks like a thousand caveats because we mm -hmm. don't we don't know and all i have to go off of is the information that i was able to find and some of it contradicts each other and even and there's been topics that i've wanted to do that are more recent or are are just kind of heavier topics that i shy away from because like Cass mentioned there's a lot of there's so many um like true crime podcasts and everything mm -hmm. I, I personally tend to shy away from some of the disaster stories or, or crime stories because I don't want to, I don't want to do the, the real people who are involved in those awful situations a disservice. And sometimes it's just incredibly difficult to research them because so many other platforms have regurgitated their the the scandalous side of the story so many times mm -hmm. or like the pulp side of the story so many mm -hmm. times it's just like it's so hard to cut through the bullshit if it's an old enough story and you can't you're not going to get you're not going to get somebody who is who was there who knew the person uh mm -hmm. to really speak to the heart of it so that's 
all of these, all of the, all of the episodes are incredibly like touching. Some of them obviously are like, are a little, are lighter. They're not all doom and gloom. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just think it's an incredible project and I, I can't wait to see how it continues to grow, especially now that, you know, you can contact the youth on the TikTok. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, like I'll, I'll share a story with you. So Linda Reynolds, who is now a spy novelist, she was a Pan Am uh, flight attendant and then uh, was one of the lead trainers down at the Pan Am Flight Academy. Um, and her pen name is L.M. Reynolds. Um, I, I bought three of her books. I haven't read them yet, but she's a wonderful lady. She's become a good friend, too. Um, and so she found six VHS tapes that she took when Pan Am closed uh, on her way out because she starred in some of them. Mm-hmm. So... So she sends these to me and I'm like, oh my God, this is like the Jack, you know, this is, I won the lottery here. Um, So I digitized them and then I started putting them on uh, YouTube and, you know, not knowing that people would find it interesting, but some of it was kind of dry, you know, a huge tour of a 747-100 series, um, 16 minutes of a flight attendant going through every single detail, <laughs> every single switch, which is fascinating because yeah. these things are not around anymore. Um, and then, you know, a couple other aircraft and like duty-free commercial that they used to play. But the training videos were brilliant because they were like these skits. And you can go on YouTube uh, and just type in Pan Am Museum and you can co- go to our YouTube page um, and see these. And um, there, there are these skits and all of the actors are flight attendants. So all of the actors are flight attendants and they do these skits on, you know, the, the wrong way to handle a customer and the right way to do handle a customer. And these went viral and the comments are just hilarious because they say things like, you know, these videos are being used right now by all the airlines, but they're using it backwards. They're teaching <laughs> teaching everyone on what not to do yeah. instead of teaching them what to do. But some of them are very almost soap opera, soap opera um, and catty. And, and um, there's like, it's there's hashtags, you know, what would Linda do? And <laughs> I'm team Linda. And oh there's hashtags on, you know, uh, the original Karen. <laughs> I mean, it's, just, <laughs> it's just hilarious. And, you know, these flight attendants just think it's the funniest thing. There's people writing articles about it um, that we un- un- unearthed these videos from, you know, some vault. Um, really, it came from Linda's closet, you know, that she just happened to you know, come across. That's a vault um, in a way. <laughs> you know, there's this one lady that wants to be upgraded to first class and Pan Am's frequent flyer program at the time was called World Pass. So she pulls up and she's like, I'm a World Pass member. You should upgrade me. What do you mean you can't? And then, you know, World Pass was trending on Twitter um, and <laughs> For a while, people, when they, when someone would complain, you know, like if, if Trump would complain about something, you know, they would hashtag, you know, 
world pass. <laughs> I love the internet so sometimes. It was, it's just like, so, so then, you know, I got drunk with some friends one night and I came up with this idea of, well, I have all these videos. Maybe I can like do a cut of like a comedy, like a 1980s, you know, <laughs> golden girls kind of thing with a laugh track. So I did that and people love that. And then people said, no, no, you need to make it a drama. So then I, you know, I recut it with dramatic music into this, like, you know, suspense. Easy. Isn't and, it amazing what a score can do? And, yeah. you know, <laughs> since May, there's been 1.3 million people that have watched all these videos. It's amazing. <laughs> so good. I feel like this is uh, a great kind of turning off point. Um, first and foremost, listeners, you bet your ass we're linking to these things uh, below in the show notes <laughs> along with oodles of information about tom and about the pan am museum and the pan am podcast but uh i don't know for for auditory learners who don't want to read the show notes tom where can people find you where they can they find the podcast and how can because the pan am uh, museum foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit. that so is how correct can yes. they, how can they support this project and also that this project that is a podcast and also the museum itself. Sure. Well, same thing with shared history. You can find our podcast on Apple podcasts, Google, Spotify, you know, all the rest. Mm -hmm. uh, our, our website for the museum is the panammuseum.org. And then you can find us on TikTok. It's Pan Am Museum. And uh, we're also on Twitter, same thing, Pan Am Museum. We're Facebook, Instagram, uh, but really our website is where you can go and donate to the museum uh, and donate to our cause. Again, you know, I do everything, you know, free. Um, this is a passion project for me. So if you, you like uh, what we're doing with the podcast and, and everything else, um, we would greatly appreciate your support uh, as a, a tax deductible donation to the museum. Well, and as Tom mentioned, listen, give a, give a, give us all your money, but also <laughs> the words of affirmation go a really long way. So <laughs> if you check out the Pan Am podcast and you love it, or if you go to the Pan Am museum website and you love it, tell them there's contact forms. Apple podcast reviews are a thing. We always yell at you to review our podcast. Anything over four stars is acceptable. But also spread that love and share that love with the Pan Am podcast. I think that the moral of um, the story today is uh, respect your flight attendants and treat them with respect. Yes. It might save your damn life or give mm -hmm. you a nice chuckle on TikTok. <laughs> yeah. And, and to add that, Natalie... Um, you know, the flight attendants are there for your safety first. So, you know, pay attention during the safety demonstrations. It could save your life one day. Mm -hmm. And that's what Dorothy Kelly, you know, think of Dorothy Kelly. Um, and what would how Dorothy she Kelly do? Yeah, what would Dorothy Kelly do? Um, it, it's very important. And then if you want, if you're especially going on a, a long flight, if you show up with a little box of chocolates and give it to your flight attendants, <gasps> they will go out of their way to look out for you. <gasps> Especially if you tell them Yo. that you listen to Shared History and the Pan Am podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Treat 
treat show flight attendants. I feel like we would be remiss if I didn't actually ask the question of as a historian with a, an expensive piece of paper that certifies you as such, <laughs> what was your area of study in school? Like what did, what was your focus when you, for that, for your fancy paper? Presidential history, which after the 2016 election, I just, you were like, no, thank you. Hard pass. Like, <laughs> Take the paper back. <laughs> just run, um, it through, <laughs> run it through the shredder. You know, like, I, I think not to get political here, but I was just talking to somebody recently. You Remember when House of Cards came out and yeah. everyone was, you know, we had boring mm -hmm. Obama with his tan suits and, you know, nothing really happened. And, you know, I'm not, I, I love Obama, but, you know, those yeah. times were, you know, we think about that now. I mean, hell, I, I miss George W. Bush. Like, I want him back. <laughs> I don't know if I'd go that far, but yeah, I, I, I know, I know, I know what you're saying. You I know just... what I'm saying. Um, and who knows, maybe I'm losing listeners by saying this, but um, you guys are a friendly crowd. But um, so House of Cards came out, this show on Netflix, and there, Frank Underwood is this just, you know, awful character throwing people in front of trains and, you know, just completely I crazy. screamed when that happened <laughs> me too I was yeah. like, but and and I remember my mom so I got my mom hooked on it and she did not leave the couch for <laughs> 12 hours and then she she got up when that scene was happening because she had to go to the bathroom and then she calls me and she's like I missed something how do I rewind the tape <laughs> like, well, it doesn't really work that way <laughs> but the point I'm trying to get across is looking back at House of Cards, that wasn't all that bad compared yeah. to what we got. I don't think us as a country will ever live down Suitgate and that tan suit. Just a, oh, a, I know a like, light a light mark oh, on our I country. Yes. <laughs> um, those were the days, right? Those, those were, were the days. days. I remember it well. Before we go. Listeners, you know that really what we are on Shared History and what we invite our guests to be are just trailblazers and pioneers. Mm -hmm. And if we can't be that, um, to be arrogant enough to say that we are. So just, just like Magellan didn't circumnavigate the globe because he didn't, uh, if you don't believe me, watch Uncharted. They tell you the story 14 <laughs> times in it. Uh, and, and Columbus didn't discover America. Is there a discovery that you want to lay claim to, Tom? Well, I don't know if there's a discovery per se, but I do have a little trick for our listeners that have iPhones that don't already know this that's going to change their life. That's a discovery. Lay it on us. Um, and I don't know why Apple doesn't promote this more. So we are all inundated by these robocalls, and it's just so distracting. So if you have an iPhone, you go to settings, then you go down to phone, and there is a feature called silence unknown callers, which means that if they are not in your contacts, they go straight, straight to voicemail. And if they want to talk to you, they'll leave a voicemail, and then you can call them back, and you're not interrupted. That is life-changing. Tom, I think you have just stumbled upon something revolutionary 
And it's thank you for discovering this. Thank so, you for your discovery. <laughs> yeah. So I, I will I will say it again, and I will also demonstrate it on. We're we're doing this interview by podcasting video. is a visual medium. <laughs> so so you open up settings, and then you scroll down to phone, and then you open up phone, and then you scroll down to silence unknown callers, and then you turn it on. And if you're expecting a call like from your doctor or lawyer or whoever, if you're expecting an important call, then you just turn it off and then just remember to turn it back on after yeah. you get the call. This is amazing. Thank you for going through that twice in case any of our listeners can't rewind the tape. It's very <laughs> difficult to rewind. <laughs> Settings, phone, silence unknown callers. Wonderful. Magical. What a pioneer. <laughs> Tom, and thank if, you. If you don't have an iPhone, I don't. I don't know how to help you. <laughs> I'll, I'll figure out how to help you with my Google phone, and I'll let you know. Uh, Google's pr pretty good at blocking them on their own. Um, and not to brag. <laughs> Tom, thank you so much for coming on and sharing so much history, but also just like your lifelong passion for aviation and pan am i'm so excited for you that you get to make this podcast like it's just magical well thank well thank you very thank you very much for having me um i i love your podcast uh i love the humor of it if you ever want me back to talk about star trek star wars james bond hitchcock pan yes. am whatever <laughs> You let me know. You just spoke my love language. Uh, <laughs> just all all of those nerddoms are my love language. Uh, absolutely. Well, oh, we should have. Oh, we'll, we should have you back for like a like a bonus episode. Something. Yeah. Something, absolutely. Something. Absolutely. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Everyone, go. I honestly, I don't care if you're an auditory learner. Look in the show notes. I have taken so many notes during this podcast. There's going to be a lot down there. Um. Thank you again for joining us. Listeners, if you have any questions, corrections, or suggestions for us, you know that you can always email those to us at sharedhistorypodcast at gmail.com or fill out the form on our website, sharedhistorypodcast.com, or, you know, just like slide into our DMs. Instagram will hide it from me and then I'll eventually find it and I'll reply. <laughs> and if you don't know how to slide into our DMs, we're at sharedpod on Instagram and Twitter. That is all she wrote. I'm going to go watch Catch Me If You Can for the 30th time. <laughs> Until next time. Share. Share. Later.